0: very warm welcome to the Brexit Briefing with me, Marcus Stead, exclusive to Talk Podcasts, coming up in this week's edition. It's taken a while, but Theresa May finally managed to talk tough. I ask, where do we go from here? What's likely to happen? What are the realistic options? Are we heading for a second referendum? And is there going to be a general election in November? Do stay tuned. Well, first of all, apologies. There's been a bit of a delay between the last podcast and this one. And that was mainly because I, I, every day that passed last week, I thought, I've got to record the podcast. But. <laughs> The story was moving so quickly that whatever I would have recorded would have become dated extremely quickly. So there was no obvious way around that. It was either going to be before Salzburg, during Salzburg, after Salzburg, or then do you wait for the Saturday and Sunday political programs on TV to come out and the Sunday papers and everything else. So I'm recording this early on Monday morning. um, And this is a good time to take stock because there's a big week ahead with the Labour Party conference And are they going to change their policy on Brexit? Well, we'll find out, though that's not the main purpose of this podcast. Just going to take a few moments to take stock. So let's go back to the end of last week. Theresa May returned from the Salzburg meeting. And on Friday afternoon, she made a surprise statement from inside Downing Street, where she finally talked tough.
1: Throughout this process, I have treated the EU with nothing but respect. The UK expects the same. A good relationship at the end of this process depends on it. At this late stage in the negotiations, it is not acceptable to simply reject the other side's proposals without a detailed explanation and counter-proposals. So we now need to hear from the EU what the real issues are and what their alternative is so that we can discuss them. Until we do, we cannot make progress. In the meantime, we must and will continue the work of preparing ourselves for no deal.
0: Oh dear. Why didn't we hear more talk like that from our Prime Minister months ago, or even this time last year? I think what's extraordinary about this whole process is just how much time has been wasted with dithering and indecisiveness. And here we are now, we're, we're six months away from the Brexit date, which is the 29th of March 2019, and there's still a huge amount to do. Um, but it's, it's worth taking a moment to remind ourselves what was in the Chequers proposals, because this term keeps coming up again and again in the papers and on the news bulletins, but how many people really know what was in it or can even remember what was in it, even if they knew two months ago? I don't want to take too long about this, but it does seem as though hardly anyone knows or remembers what it was about. Uh, Not many political reporters on TV have bothered to try and explain it because it's not something that can easily be reduced to a soundbite or a couple of sentences, but I'll just take a couple of minutes now to remind you of what was in the Chequers proposals. The first thing was the common rulebook, and the idea was that after Brexit, a UK-EU free trade area would be created with what was called a common rulebook for industrial and agricultural goods, with cooperative arrangements established between regulators. A treaty was due to be signed committing the UK to continued harmonisation with EU rules, which would in principle avoid friction at the UK-EU border, including Northern Ireland, crucially there really. And Parliament would oversee the UK's trade policy, but could choose, in inverted commas, to diverge from EU rules, Uh, recognizing that this would have consequences but that's all a little bit vague isn't it point two facilitated customs arrangements Um, and that was a facilitated customs arrangement would remove the need for a backstop arrangement and avoid a hard irish border but would allow the uk to control its own tariffs for, for trade with the rest of the world without causing border disruption the uk would apply domestic tariffs and trade policies for goods intended for the uk but charge EU tariffs and their equivalents for goods which would end up heading to the EU. Bit clumsy that, isn't it? But it it does explain it. Borders between the UK and the EU would be treated as combined customs territory. Point three, freedom of movement. A free movement of people would come to an end. Uh, The agreement said that free movement of people uh, was pivotal to the referendum, giving the UK back control over how many people enter the country. To allow the UK and EU citizens to travel to each other's territories, a new framework would be needed to be established. And point four, uh, joint jurisdiction. The UK courts would take charge of decision making over the European Courts of Justice, but UK-EU disputes would be dealt with by a joint committee. This would end the role of the European Court of Justice, the ECJ, in UK affairs and very briefly other checkers deal points include the uk would leave the common agricultural policy and the common fisheries policy there would be no hard border between northern ireland and um, the republic of ireland and there would be no hard border between northern ireland and the united kingdom in other words no border in the middle of the irish sea britain would exit eu rules on services meaning banks could lose the ability to freely sell their services and the end of annual payments to the EU budget with appropriate contributions for joint action in specific areas end of that particular quote but it became clear almost immediately that the ink had dried on the chequers agreement that this plan was unworkable from the EU itself to the so-called hardline brexiteers within the conservative party the EU was never going to allow to allow the UK to go its own way on services, yet stay aligned to the single market for goods and agriculture. This idea of splitting goods from services was not going to work. Brussels made that much clear. David Davis and Boris Johnson seemed to find the notion of the EU having any legal jurisdiction over trade disputes unacceptable, hence their resignations within three days of Chequers. And here's a point that has been largely overlooked. A number of other Conservative MPs and MEPs said they could just about accept checkers, but there was absolutely no further room for manoeuvre. And the prominent Conservative MEP Daniel Hannan was an example of that. But Michel Barnier, the chief negotiator, and Donald Tusk only ever saw Chequers as a starting point. And that word compromise has come up time and time again in the last week. Well, further compromises would inevitably lead to further resignations or at the bare minimum, even more Conservative MPs voting down the Chequers proposal if and when it reached Parliament. And there have been rumours this last few days that Liam Fox is close to quitting the Cabinet. not saying that's definitely going to happen. Perhaps it has happened by the time you're listening to this. I don't know. But there would be repercussions because Chequers was, for the for the, the minds of many people like Daniel Hannan, as far as they were prepared to go. But pretty much straight away, even before the summer recess, it became clear that when the Chequers proposals came before the House of Commons, or more specifically, an EU deal based loosely on Checkers, it was only ever going to get through the House of Commons, with the help of Labour votes as an absolute long shot. Parlour entry arithmetic dictated that with the sheer number of Conservative rebels, and Conservatives were not happy with it, from the Jacob Rees-Mogg wing of the party and now the David Davis wing of the party and their allies, it was going to rely on Labour votes if it was going to get through at all. But it has become clear, particularly in the last couple of weeks, that Labour are not going to get behind any deal based on checkers. So, in effect... What we witnessed at uh, Salzburg last week was an irrelevant sideshow because any deal based on that would not get through the House of Commons in the so-called meaningful vote the House has been guaranteed. Salzburg was the first time that the other 27 EU member states had met since the Chequers proposals were published. And Theresa May's admirers and supporters put a spin on it beforehand, describing it as her attempt to appeal to EU leaders... Over the head of the chief negotiator Michel Barnier in a bid to somehow change his mandate and to make checkers workable. To begin with, the EU played its hand very carefully. They did not want to kill checkers because they are wary of Theresa May being toppled, and then they'd face the very real possibility of her being replaced by, say, Boris Johnson or Jacob Rees Mogg, who would take a much harder line and Checkers would be out of the window, it would be Canada plus plus, or no deal, as far as they're concerned. And the EU is also, let's not forget this, aware that it sells more to the UK than the other way around, and the EU would be harming itself by not doing a deal of some sort. More on that in a moment. But by Thursday afternoon of last week, the entire charade had been blown to smithereens. At a news conference, Donald Tusk, the European Council president, said, We should not hide the obvious truth. The Chequers plan will not work. There are positive elements in the Czechos proposal, but the suggested framework for economic cooperation will not work, not least because it risks undermining the single market. So bad manners and discourtesy from EU leaders became the order of the day. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, also dismissed the economic parts of the Chequers proposal and then launched an astonishing attack on Brexiteers. He said, Brexit is the choice of the British people, pushed by those who predicted easy solutions. Those people are liars, he said. Downing Street was stunned by Tusk. Negative newspaper headlines followed the following day. Um, We had humiliation, catastrophe, ambush, fury... The Sun, which has denounced Chequers relentlessly from the very start, came up with the banner headline EU Dirty Rats. Last Saturday, there was a meeting in Bolton of the group Leave Means Leave, which was a cross-party gathering of those calling for a full and complete Brexit. And those present included uh, Kate Hoey from the Labour Party, Nigel Farage from UKIP, And um, David Davis, the former Brexit secretary who resigned over the Chequers agreement, which he felt he could not support. But he had some strong words about the way Theresa May had been treated in Salzburg last week.
2: Now, you know, because you've just been told, that I have a serious difference of opinion with our Prime Minister. But, but even so... I have to tell you that I view the behavior of the European Union leaders at Salzburg with contempt. Yeah. With contempt. Yeah. Bad manners and discourtesy are not the hallmarks of great men. Indeed, indeed I rather felt that we should send them Jacob Rees-Mogg to give them some lessons in manners. Yeah. <laughs> As the Prime Minister said yesterday, uh, she and I have always treated the European Union leadership with respect, maybe sometimes too much respect, but with respect. My comment to them after Thursday is disrespect our Prime Minister and you disres- disrespect our country. Disrespect the decision of the British people, Mr. Macron, and you disrespect our democracy. And if you think you can bully our country, all I can do is recommend you read some history books.
0: Former Brexit Secretary David Davis, playing to a sympathetic audience perhaps, but I felt the speech, and indeed the Leave Means Leave Conference in general, did not receive the level of coverage it deserved in the mainstream media. Later on in the speech, Mr. Davis explained which aspect of checkers he found most unacceptable: the common rule
2: book. Well, let's talk about democracy. What do the British people think of checkers? More than half of them? More than half of them. More than half of them oppose it. Less than a fifth of them. Less than a fifth of them support it. And they're right. Now, why are they right? There are many reasons. There are many things wrong with checkers, but I'm going to focus on just one for you today, because it's central to what we thought we were voting for back on June 23, 2016. The government. Is proposing a common rule book for the regulation of our industry. This, this, is, this is a very delicate turn of phrase. A common rule book. What does it mean? It's common only that it means it's written by the European Union and obeyed by us. That's what a common rule book means. For a nation that's seeking its independence. In the world, seeking to make its own way in the world, this is simply ridiculous. This is simply untenable. For the fifth largest, for the fifth largest economy in the world, leading the way on in innovation, we cannot be governed by a body in which we have no say, no influence, no vote. It should not even be contemplated. We should be discussing. We should by all means be discussing these rules with them as collaborators and, uh, and cooperators but not taking orders. And Let me just give you one practical effect of this because you will see time and again big businessmen interested in defending their own business as it exists today under the existing rules today say this is what we need. You know, we're in the chemical industry, we don't have very many changes in rules, we'll live by this. We're in the car industry, we don't have any many rule rule changes, we'll live by this. But what about our future? What about those industries that are going to matter to us in the future? We are a leading country in artificial intelligence, in life sciences, in self-driving cars, in genetics. How on earth are we going to stay a leading country if the rules for those industries are written by our competitors and written in a way to disadvantage us?
0: Towards the end of his speech, David Davis explained why a no-deal Brexit would ultimately do enormous harm to EU economies. After all, in 2017, The UK had a trade deficit with the EU of minus 67 billion pounds. Does the EU really want to lose one of its key trading partners? Wouldn't that be the EU cutting off its own nose to spite its face?
2: I was in Munich on the same day the Prime Minister was in Salzburg. I was talking to a mixture of German politicians, academics and businessmen about the consequences for Germany if uh, there were a tariff system in place. Essentially, it would mean that the uh, car industry in Bavaria, where I am speaking, would lose about one-third of its exports to this country. That's one-third of the second-biggest, fastest-growing car, mar- car market in the, in the European Union. They'd lose two-thirds of their dairy exports to the United Kingdom. France will learn a, lose a significant portion of its wine exports see what see 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 what well there's always Australian and Chilean and so on for us. Um, but the but, but just see how the just see how the French farmers feel about that. Mr. Macron has already got even lower popularity ratings than Mr. Hollander, which is pretty difficult in its own right. Uh, think how he'll go on to that. But not just them, also Belgium and the Netherlands will lose large parts of their cross-channel trade. And the worst hit of all would be Ireland. No, 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 I don't, no, I don't, don't cheer. I mean, I don't wish, I don't wish economic downturn on anybody. And actually, one of the arguments against a WTO uh, deal for me is what it would actually do to our neighbours. Because actually, I think they would suffer worse than we would we have got a free floating currency which will compensate for uh, for any changes in trade arrangements we have got uh, our own free government at that point which is completely unfettered by regulations of any sort other than the ones it wants to impose itself but most of all for us most of all for us for the last 20 years at least the rest of the world trade has been growing us faster than European trade. 20 years ago, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, 60% of our trade was with Europe and 40% with the rest of the world. Now it's the other way round. 60% with the rest of the world. And as we leave the European Union, that change will get faster and faster and faster. And that will be what powers the British economy in the, in the coming years.
0: Former Brexit Secretary David Davis on the economic realities of a no-deal Brexit for our European neighbours. So, where does that leave us? I cannot foresee any circumstances in which there could possibly be a second referendum. It's enshrined in law that the UK will leave the EU on the 29th of March 2019 at 11pm. Parliament does not return until mid-October. The Electoral Commission says it needs six months' notice to hold a referendum. Well, it's almost already too late for that reason alone. Beyond that, we'd be looking at a lengthy parliamentary debate about what the question would be, what would happen if the deal was rejected in a referendum, does that mean go back and renegotiate, or would the UK stay in the EU? Would the EU even allow the UK to stay in on the same terms? Probably not actually. They'd probably insist on some kind of financial recompense, such as bailing out Italy. Even if the legislation could be pushed through Parliament, the Electoral Commission would then have to appoint an official designated campaign for both sides. Then we'd have to have the campaign. Look, that just is not possible within a six-month timescale, even if we started immediately you'd struggle to hold a referendum in less than a year, realistically. If Mrs May comes back from the EU with a deal loosely based on Chequers, and that is now a very big if, as I have already said in this week's podcast, that is almost certain to be rejected by Parliament. And, well, what would happen then? It seems likely to me that there would be a private members' bill which results in the UK joining the EEA stroke EFTA. And I believe calls for this course of action will continue to get louder in the weeks ahead. I predicted this on the Brexit briefing a week or two ago, you may recall. Um, And in the period since, we've seen Peter Hitchens in the Mail on Sunday advocate this course of action. Uh, Christopher Booker has said it. And I think it's going to get louder still as the reality of the situation becomes clear. And you know what? EEA stroke F the membership would not be a bad outcome for all sides. And unlike some others, I am not going to be blasé about a no-deal Brexit. No deal is certainly preferable to remaining in the customs union. The customs union, let's be clear about what the customs union is because this often gets lost in the discourse. The customs union ensures all member countries charge the same import duty to non-members. And for Brexit to be a success, it is essential that the UK is not part of the customs union because it will prevent our country from being able to agree free trade deals with the wider world, or even set tariffs on our own terms to countries where no free trade deal exists. The importance of not being part of the customs union cannot be understated. And the solution to this deadlock is remarkably straightforward. Theresa May was wrong to rule out membership of EFTA in her Lancaster House speech in January. And this is a solution to the current crisis. And I don't use the word crisis lightly. I do believe we are in a state of crisis. It was a fateful wrong turning by Theresa May. If the UK chose to be a member of EFTA, we could stay in the European Economic Area. We would be able to leave the EU, agree our own trade deals with non-EU countries, since we would not be in the customs union, and we would stay in the single market. Crucially, we would also be able to suspend freedom of movement, since EEA members are allowed to activate Article 112 of the EEA agreement. Thank you, Christopher Booker, for pointing this out in your Sunday Telegraph column last week. And it's known as the emergency break. This method has been used by Liechtenstein to suspend freedom of movement indefinitely and implement its own quota system. The precedent has been set. As a far larger country with much more clout, the UK could do the same with ease. There are of course inevitably downsides to EEA membership. We would still have to pay some money every year, though nowhere near as much as at present. We'd also have to accept their regulations when we traded with them, but then again, we also have to accept the rules of the USA, China, India or any other country we choose to trade with, which is reasonable. But on the crucial matters, parliamentary sovereignty, the supremacy of British courts, immigration controls, the ability to form trade deals with the wider world and the ability to form a genuinely independent foreign policy, we would be winners on all counts. The solution is there, right in front of us. We can take it off the shelf, plug it in. It's staring us in the face. It's now time to look seriously at the so-called Norway option, or to be more specific EEA stroke EFTA membership. And finally, this week, Downing Street has been forced to deny claims it has secretly begun preparing for a snap election in November to rescue Theresa May's Brexit plans. Never believe anything until it's been officially denied. Who said that? As we've already said in this week's podcast, it would be nigh on impossible for Mrs May to get a deal even remotely resembling the Chequers' proposals through the House of Commons. The Mail on Sunday quoted a source as saying the election plan was being seriously discussed. The source said, As things stand, even if we can get a deal with the EU, it is hard to see us getting any agreement through the Commons. Either the Brexiteers or the Remainers would stop it. We are running out of options. You know what? I'm not convinced. The bookies have the likelihood of a general election in November this year at about 12 to 1, and I think they've got that right. We saw last year what can happen when election campaigns go wrong and Mrs May's Conservative majority was unexpectedly wiped out. I suppose one aspect of it is that it would force Labour to actually have a coherent policy on Brexit and say what they're going to do, how they're going to handle the situation. But on the other hand, November general elections are risky. We haven't had one at that time of year for a very, very long time indeed. It gets dark at around 4pm, it's often wet and windy, and getting your voters out would be an issue. I can't see it myself. And that brings us to the end of another Brexit Briefing. God, the podcast seems to be getting longer and longer by the week, doesn't it? It's not deliberate, I promise you. I'll be back with another Brexit Briefing next week, where I'll look back on what's likely to be a dramatic week at the Labour Party conference. Will the party change its policy on a second EU referendum? And what would the consequences of that be, particularly in the party's heartlands? The Conservative Party conference will be in full swing by this time next week. What will that bring? Who knows, eh? In the meantime, feel free to send me an email at marcusstead at hotmail.co.uk or send me a tweet, I'm at marcusstead on Twitter. Thank you very much for listening. Do remember to tell your friends. We're on talkpodcast.com. Or if you prefer, you can search for the podcast on iTunes. See you next week.